Our reading for today comes from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. Philippians 4, verses 10 to 23. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippines yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Amen. My thanks to, to Lord for leading the service so far, to our musicians for playing for us. That's been super. Now, we're, we're going to spend a few minutes together thinking about the passage that, that Rod has just read from Philippians chapter 4. Um, if you have a Bible, um, either a physical um, paper Bible or, or on a device of some sort, please do have that open in front of you over the next few minutes. Before we spend some time thinking about those verses together, though, let me ask God for his help of us all this morning. Let's pray. Paul writes, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Our God and Father, we thank you so very much for Jesus. And ask that as we spend some time thinking about your word together this morning, we will grow in our love for him and likeness to him. And perhaps come to know him for the very first time. We ask these things for our joy and for your glory, and do so in his name. Amen. Amen. Well then, this morning, I'm going to be sharing with you the secret to contentment, the key to living a contented life. And I hope that sounds like the kind of thing you'd like to get your hands on, contentedness. But I wonder, even as I say those words, if some of you are starting to feel a tiny bit uncomfortable not at the prospect of contentment, but at the idea that someone might be able to offer you the secret to contentment. Because we're used to hearing that kind of offer, aren't we, from uh, the self-help gurus of the world. Perhaps uh, more commonly still from the celebrity on the TV chat show, as they reflect on on having lived life in the fast lane for a little while, uh, but being so thankful they've now settled down, and uh, maybe they've taken up Pilates, and uh, they found true contentedness in life. And a uh, part of the reason that that kind of contentedness might make you feel a bit uncomfortable is that it's often accompanied by a push to buy the celebrity's latest book. Uh, so you can have contentedness too, and it's out just in time for Christmas. Part of it might also be that it is hard to take someone seriously 
when they say that kind of thing, they say that they found contentment as they then slip off in a chauffeur-driven car to a penthouse apartment. It's hard to, in that situation not to think that the celebrity chef or the soap star, that their contentment is circumstantial. It isn't quite so much that they're content, it's just that they're quite fortunate. It would be a different thing entirely, though, if, if that offer, the offer of contentment, was coming not from someone whose life was, was, was pretty much set, but from someone who was facing a really difficult time. And you could still say they feel content. That might make us sit up and take notice. Contentment that, that sort of transcends circumstances. And as it happens, that is exactly the kind of contentment that is on offer to each one of us this morning. The kind of steady satisfaction that will withstand the loss of everything. Don't take my word for it. Take Paul's. Philippians chapter 4 verse 11. I have learned, says Paul, in whatever situation I am, to be content. It's a wonderful prospect, isn't it? The idea that whatever comes at you in life, you could still be truly content. And it is just worth being clear that for for Paul, it isn't just an idea. And we know that it isn't just an idea because Paul had actually lost everything, humanly speaking. We've seen in the past few weeks, he's writing this letter from a Roman prison cell. He couldn't be further from a TV talk show couch if he tried. And yet, even in this situation, he says, I feel content. And his desire and God's desire for us, I think, actually, is that we should have that kind of contentedness in life too. And so that's going to be the focus of our time together this morning, to think firstly about where to find this kind of contentedness, and secondly about how to know whether we have found it or not. Let's do that firstly under the heading. Next slide, please, Samuel. Thank you. Verses 10 to 13. Learn the secret of contentment. If you have Jesus, you lack nothing. Anyway, I wonder how you feel about wedding gift lists. Those lists that couples who are planning on getting married send out with the invitations to their wedding, of, 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 with a list of, I guess, various things they might need as they set out on, on married life together, crockery and cutlery and those kinds of things. I know that some folks feel a bit uneasy about them eh, because they feel a bit presumptuous. You know, gifts should be spontaneous rather than requested, goes the logic. And I do have some sympathy for that view. But on balance, I do think they are a good idea. And what convinced me of the merit of those gift lists is the experience of a couple who are very close to me. I might have mentioned this before. They're a bit older than we are. They didn't have a wedding gift list. They had uh, lots of friends and family friends who wanted to celebrate their marriage with them, though. Unfortunately, they all chose to do that in exactly the same way, which meant that as wedding presents, this couple received 23 quiche dishes. 23 quiche dishes. Can you imagine? I wouldn't know what to do with one quiche dish, if I'm honest. I presume it's got something to do with quiche. After that, I'm at a bit of a loss. But even though that was overkill... Well, they still felt it was right to to thank each person who bought them a gift. And so they dutifully wrote those thank you letters to each person who gave them a quiche dish. And there is a sense in which this whole letter we've been studying over the past few weeks and months, a letter to the Philippians, is a little bit like one of those. It's one long thank you letter. 
You see, the Philippians had sent some money to Paul to support him while he was in prison during Paul's time of need. And he was really, really thankful for that. Chapter 4, verse 10. Just look at that with me if you would. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So far, that sounds like a setup for a fairly standard thank you letter. Until things take a bit of a turn. Just carry on reading verses 11 to 12 with me again. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Or in other words... I'm really glad you sent me the money, Philippians, says Paul. But to be honest, I didn't really need it. And that seems a bit out of line, isn't it? Even when you're sent 23 quiche dishes, it's only right to say thank you for for the gift, isn't it? And frankly, what the Philippians gave to Paul was nothing like a quiche dish. They sent him money to support him while he was in prison. He did actually need the gift they sent. And so it almost sounds in Philippians 4 as though Paul's being a bit churlish, a bit ungrateful. But he isn't. He is genuinely glad about the money they sent to him, and we'll think about why in a moment or two. But the reason he says he didn't need their money is to make it crystal clear that even if he was completely skint, Even if, humanly speaking, his circumstances gave him no reason whatsoever to be glad of his lot, he could still have said, I am content. He has an unshakable contentedness that isn't dependent, it isn't contingent on his circumstances. And that isn't how we often tend to think of things, is it? I've already mentioned, when we speak about being contented, it often has a great deal to do with our circumstances. Once I've reached a certain point in my career, then I'll be more settled in myself, we might think. Once I've earned enough money to secure my future, and perhaps that of my family, then I'll be truly happy. Once my children reach a certain age, and I know they've turned out all right, then I'll be content. That isn't how Paul sees it at all. He sees contentment as something that transcends circumstances. And even, perhaps even more interestingly still, he sees contentment not even as something we find, but as something we can learn. Verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And again, that's a surprising way to to put it, isn't it? Learning contentment. That isn't how we tend to think of things. We we speak about finding contentment in life, don't we? Think again of the the -the over-the-hill pop star on the TV chat show who's had his fame and fortune but says that he has finally found contentment through living a simpler life of meditation and healthy living. That isn't how Paul thinks of contentment as something to find. He thinks of it as something to learn. All of which begs the question, well, how do you do that? What's your secret, Paul? And the answer comes in what is a very famous verse for some of us, I guess, verse 13. I can do all things through him 
who strengthens me. Paul finds his contentment in God. And notice, not in God as a, as a motivating object or idea out there. It isn't that he's so grateful for all God has done for him that he convinces himself to feel better about his situation. No, I can do all things, says Paul, through God who strengthens me. God is an active, is an enabling person in here in Paul's life. Whether, verse 12, he's brought low or abounding, whether he's facing plenty or hunger, abundance or need, he can know contentment. How? Through God's help, his strengthening even when, humanly speaking, we're at our very weakest. That's the secret Paul has found to contentment. And I wonder how many of us could say that that's true of ourselves today. That no matter what comes our way, we've learned to trust and rely on God and on his strength. Because I think it's fair to say that the decks are stacked against contentment in our culture. We're actively discouraged from being contented with what we have. Think, for example, about the shape of advertising. The, the, the whole ball game of pretty much every ad campaign you will ever see on social media or TV is to persuade you that you're lacking, that your phone or device isn't up to scratch, that your car has been superseded by a new model. You need another one. At right move, the, the property letting and sales agency sold us the idea a few years ago that we all need a new house. And they told us that we, we could, in, in doing that, by getting a new house, we could, in their words, find your happy. And it isn't just with products, it's with career and with work, it's with family life and relationships. We are sold the idea that we ought not be content with what we have. We need more to be happy. And to be frank, we don't often need much convincing. Some of us will spend a lifetime searching for contentment and think that what will finally give it to us is what comes next. The next role, the next promotion, the next pay rise, the next holiday. Once we get that next thing, then I'll be happy until we actually get it and it turns out to have been a mirage. Because then we want the next again thing. You see, discontentment is the air that we breathe. And alongside that, I am also aware that there are a number of people in our church family who have plenty of reasons, objective reasons, to feel discontented, who are are facing really bleak situations of financial uncertainty, of, of illness, of mental ill health, of relational difficulties, any of which might give you plenty of reason to feel discontented and to long to change your situation. And it is worth saying that as Christians, we have as much reason as anyone to feel the strain of living in a world that is not as it's meant to be. We are right to long for Jesus to come back and to make all things right again, as he's promised to do. But while we wait, where are we going to look for the resources to wait? And not to do so frustratedly, but to wait contentedly. The secret, the key to contentment, says Paul, is that we can only find it in God himself by learning, that's the word Paul uses, learning to lean on him in good times and in bad. Every bit as much in the good times when we're perhaps tempted to forget about him as in the bad. And that means that if you take nothing else from this morning's talk, 
please take the plea to pray. To ask God, if you're a Christian, for the strengthening that Paul enjoyed, the contentedness in him, come what may. Learn the secret of contentment. When you have Jesus, you lack nothing. Now, um, you might be a, a Christian this morning, and it, it's possible that that hasn't come as a bolt from the blue. You might know that to be true intellectually. But what does it actually look like in practice? How will you know if you really are content in God? Uh, well, one way contentment cashes out in real life, says Paul, is quite literally by cashing out. Christian contentment, he says, will be obvious from how you use your money. And that is our second point this morning. Show the signs of contentment. Invest generously in gospel partnership. Now, I mentioned earlier that Paul's a bit less, um, we'll put it politely, he's a bit less effusive in his thanks to the Philippians for their gift than we might expect him to be. But that isn't because he isn't pleased they gave him the money. We, we, we thought about that a moment or two ago. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord that you've revived your concern for me. He is delighted. He's rejoicing that they sent him money. The reason this sounds like a pretty strange thank you letter, though, is that he isn't rejoicing because of what was in it for him. Paul's pleased the Philippians gave him money because of what it told him about them. It told Paul that the Philippians had found contentment in Jesus too. And it did that in, in three different ways, actually. It did that by showing what they thought of God. Did it by showing the kinds of rewards they are going to get and what they really value. And thirdly, it did that by showing what they thought of Paul. Let's just walk through each of those reasons in turn. Firstly, what did their gift to Paul say about their relationship with God? Now, I'm aware that as soon as a preacher starts talking about money, people can start to tense up. We can tense up because we're anxious talking about our, our money in, in culture generally. But it can also make us tense up because, well, let's be frank, Christian preachers haven't always had a great track record when it comes to talking to people about money. One American televangelist, for example, launched an appeal a few years ago to buy himself another private jet. I did say another private jet. Clearly his first one wasn't quite making the cut. And he used verses like Philippians 4, verse 17 to say, if you give to my ministry, if you buy me a bigger plane, God will be pleased with you. And it is just worth saying that if you feel uncomfortable about that kind of message, you're absolutely right to. You really are. The, the, the fund my lavish lifestyle and you'll be blessed message is, is anti-Bible, anti-Jesus, and it is so far from Paul's situation, it's unreal, isn't it? So it's important you hear Philippians 4 with all of those caveats in place. And at the same time, it's important you hear Philippians 4. Notice what Paul says about giving money to gospel work. Verse 18. The gifts you sent were a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. See, the Philippians gave open-handedly to the work of telling people about Jesus, says Paul. And to God, that giving... That gift, it smelled good. It was a fragrant offering. It was a pleasing sacrifice. It was a sign that they valued God very highly. Their contentment really was in him, and they were putting their money where their mouths were. And that does make sense, doesn't it? 
We do tend to spend money on what we really value in life. And so the Philippians' open-handed giving to gospel work showed just how much they valued God. It was a, a pleasing sacrifice to him. But Paul isn't only glad about their giving because of what it said about their commitment to God. He's glad about it too because it showed what kinds of rewards they really valued. Read with me again, verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, as in the money you sent me, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. There is a sense there that that giving money to gospel work, one, is an indicator of fruit in the life of the giver, and two, that it results in credit for the giver. Now, again, we need to be careful about the abuse of a verse like that. Paul isn't saying that for every 10 quid you give to gospel work, you'll get 20 back, not at all. Nor is he saying, and it's really important we hear this very clearly, that if you give to gospel work, you can some way buy your way into heaven. That isn't the case at all. But there is a sense in in what Paul says, in which giving money to gospel work is of blessing to the giver themselves. What might that blessing look like? Well, it might cash out in a number of different ways. At least one of those that we read of elsewhere in the Bible, though, is of the fruit that has come from your giving. Imagine the joy as, as one of the Philippians reaches heaven or the new creation and meets someone who heard about and responded to the good news of Jesus through Paul's ministry, which they'd helped to fund, helped to support. Just extraordinary joy in that moment. Of course it was worth giving to that. Investing in gospel work like that really is a very sound investment. I remember years ago hearing a preacher putting it this way, and it's stuck with me ever since, that we often say about money that you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead of you. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead of you. Giving to gospel work does bring blessing to the giver. Now, it is just worth pulling into a lay-by and uh, acknowledging one possible objection at this point. If you're a Christian here this morning, I mentioned before, this, this is unlikely to be completely new to you. And, and I guess unlikely that it's, it's going to be difficult for you to get your head around that the idea that, that being a Christian has implications for what you do with your money. What wouldn't surprise me, though, is if this call, the Bible's call to be open-handed with your money, is difficult not for us to get our heads around, but to get our hearts around Quite a number of reasons we find it quite tricky. It might be that it threatens our sense of security, for example. Not that you're chasing a flashy lifestyle, but it's a reassuring thing to know that you're well set for a rainy day or you're set for a comfortable retirement. Or maybe the idea isn't unsettling because you've got plenty of money and don't want to lose it. Maybe it's unsettling because you're not sure that you have enough. Just to be clear this morning, God isn't oblivious to any of that. He isn't at all oblivious to your situation and to what you need. And he promises that he will provide. You can trust him. That's what he says to the Philippians, isn't it? Verse 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God knows what you need. And he is able to meet that need. And so the question remains, will we trust him enough to submit our whole lives to him? Even our money. If you still aren't convinced yet, there is one final motivation, if you like, in Philippians 4. One reason that Paul's so glad about the Philippians' generosity towards him. 
And it's a phrase that I've used more than any other during this series. You'll be fed up hearing those, these two words together, but I make no apologies. Gospel partnership. Now, you may or may not have gathered that um, Friday evening just passed was Children in Need evening. I didn't actually watch any of the coverage this year. I understand they raised a lot of money, though. And the way they tend to do that is by highlighting the good work that various different groups around the country are doing. And they show how committed the volunteers are to doing that particular work. And therefore, on the basis of those volunteers' commitment, ask you to support them in their work. And that's quite an effective way to raise money, isn't it? And I do wonder if that might be similar to how we sometimes think of supporting gospel workers. You may be aware that as a church family, we have mission partners, both in the UK and around the world. And we might be under the impression that that, that those partners have a, a real heart for ministry in another part of the world, for telling people about Jesus. And a little bit like children in need, it would be a really jolly good thing, a kind thing, if we could only support them as they fulfill their own particular desires. Paul sees things a little bit different than that. Just read again with me from verse 14. It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Now, the picture there isn't of someone rattling a tin to to, to raise funds for his own particular passion in life. Picture it more as two partners in a business. One partner picking up the phone to the other partner, letting him or her know that there are some needs if this business is going to meet any of its goals and asking to help meet some of those needs to support the partnership. You see, the Philippians were partners in the gospel business, if you like, with Paul. And that means that though they weren't physically in prison with him as he writes this letter, he can still say that they share in his trouble. Now, that was the case for Paul and the Philippians. And it is the same for us and for our local and global gospel partners. We don't just support gospel partners, like giving money to a charity and never seeing it again. We partner with them. We are invested in them and with them in the work as they tell people about Jesus and we pray for them and help to support them in various different ways. And I wonder if you can see how that colors our view of of financial giving to gospel workers. It isn't something that we do at a distance. It isn't like chucking a couple of quid into a collection tin. It's something that we are invested in. And again, this is part of how we express our own contentment in the Lord. By investing generously in his work. Work in which we share with our partners. Three reasons for us to show signs of contentment with our money, in which the Philippians certainly showed it. Firstly, because of what it says of our relationship to God. It is a pleasing sacrifice to him. Secondly, because of the credit, the heavenly returns in that sense. And thirdly, because that kind of financial support, it isn't quite like any other act of charity. It's an act of partnership. Now, if you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, I am well aware that all this talk about money and money related to Jesus and spiritual things, it might sound a bit extreme to you. It might be exactly why you aren't a Christian, in fact, because it all sounds a bit radical. And in one sense, well, it really is quite radical. 
Jesus doesn't hide that when he speaks about following him. He calls people to take up a cross. It doesn't get more radical than that if they're to follow him. But even though that call is radical, he is no man or woman's debtor. It is just the opposite. He came to give, to welcome you into abundant, contented life. Life eternal in relationship with your loving Father. And in fact, he was so committed to making that possible that Jesus, though he was rich, for your sake became poor. He came from the glory of heaven, we read in Philippians chapter 2, to die a criminal's death on a cross. That's why Paul thought Jesus was so valuable and is willing to stake his life on him. And it's why we think you should do the same. But whatever you do, don't let this all pass you by without giving it really good thought. As we close, both close this particular talk and close this whole series in Philippians, actually, if you are a partner here in Hebron, if this is your church family, we've seen over the past few weeks that we have much to be thankful for, much to be encouraged by as partners with one another in telling people the good news of Jesus. But we have nothing to be complacent about. If we are to keep going and to keep growing outwards in partnership with one another and with our global partners in all the days to come, well, we need God's help. It's been a recurrent theme through this letter, and it's been a recurrent theme this morning even, hasn't it? Paul was sure, he said in chapter 1, that he who began a good work in the Philippians would bring it to completion. Who was it doing the work in the Philippians? It was God himself. And so if you're going to resolve to do anything after this morning, resolve to pray. Ask God to work in and through you to keep you going, to keep you growing in gospel partnership with one another, in contentedness in him, striving side by side for the sake of the good news of Jesus and for a world which so desperately needs to hear that good news. Let me ask him for his help to do that together now. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come before you in praise this morning because you have been so rich towards us. You are kind and gracious and good. And when we have you, Lord Jesus, we lack nothing. We ask that you would please help each of us here to learn that, whether facing a time of plenty or a time of want a time of ease or a time of difficulty. Help us each to know more of your goodness and sufficiency in all the days to come and so to be content in you. And we ask that we would please grow in our open-handed partnership with gospel work, both here in Hebron and around the world, that people who have yet to hear the good news of a God who loves them would hear that good news. And lastly, we do ask that you would please impress upon any here who have yet to trust in you the wonderful offer available to them when they decide to follow Jesus. And ask that even today that someone would bow the knee before you and receive those extraordinary riches of grace in the Lord Jesus, of forgiveness, of right relationship with you, and of eternity with you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake.
Amen.